on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here. And my name is Sally Rugg. How's been your week, Sally? It's been fine. It's been good. My family and I have recently relocated down to Tasmania for a few months while my partner, Kate, makes a TV show. Kate makes TV. And so, yeah, we've moved down a couple of days ago and... It's been really chaotic, as moving house always is. Moving states, I think, sort of ups that level a little bit more. And we moved house. So it's like Kate, myself and our daughter, but we also brought the cats with us um, because, well, regular listeners of the pod will know why. But, yeah, so moving the cats has been worth it and difficult. Are they been um, less than impressed with having to give up their usual routine and head to beautiful Tasmania? Yeah, I mean, like the key to moving any animal, really, any sort of pet, but also like children and adults probably as well, is to really like minimise too much stimulation or too much different smells or noises or, you know, like to really sort of make it calm. But unfortunately, like moving house across states is the opposite of all those things. So (laughs) they have sort of rightfully been a bit cross. But yeah, my, my week has been fine. I've been quite distracted this week with some of the goings on in, you know, the... The public square. The public square. There have been several moments where I've found myself being thrilled to bits. So we're recording this a couple of days before folks are listening to it. And so I was like really overjoyed watching the tennis. I've been overjoyed seeing Dylan Alcott get Australian of the Year. And I've also been quite angry and sort of frustrated a couple of times. And I actually wanted to ask you a question, Francis. Go right ahead. I wondered, like, in your working life... How often do you get told to smile more? Not very. Occasionally I did when I was doing some telly stuff. (laughs) Were you like on camera? Yeah, maybe it was less could you smile more, but you you could be more relaxed. But that was more of a a directive relative to performance and that's a different thing to being told to smile to please other people. What about like giving and receiving feedback or instructions? Have you ever been told that like you're aggressive or like not friendly enough or that you should smile more? I've been told that I need to be more more forgiving of people in the workplace occasionally um, and, and not so presumptuous about their, about uh, what people are capable of. But, you know, that's that feedback that any workplace is going to provide in a healthy environment. Here's me kind of like setting this up to make a comment on like expectations upon different genders in the workplace and... Francis, you're like, well, there was the Fair Work Commission <laughs> investigation and, oh, I suppose there were the... No, I'm kidding. I am, of course, doing a bit of a setup to talk about my rage and the collective rage, I, I think, at now former Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, who is just... I mean, I've never met her, obviously, and, like, she's just a hero of mine. I, th- I think she's 
extraordinary in, in such a variety of ways. But so former Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, attended the Australian of the Year ceremony for next year. And as she arrived, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his wife greeted her and sort of said, like, you know, there's cameras waiting and sort of set up this quick photo op with Grace and her fiancé Max. You know, they shook hands, went for the photo, and Grace did not smile. In fact, Grace looked displeased, right? Like she wasn't pulling a face, but she was not hiding her displeasure, I would well, say. Well, right? Sally, she's a smart person and she clearly understood that what was going on there was she was being ambushed to provide a photo opportunity for a political moment for the Prime Minister. And she had every right not to give him that moment. And the the, the giant hypocrisy for me out of all this, and you're probably going to talk about this, remember that moment where uh, Kenneth Hayne had done the Banking Royal Commission and he was rolled into a meeting with the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, the most awkward meeting. It felt like one of those moments out of out of the office, you know, like out of the, the David Brent office, the Ricky Gervais version, so cringeworthy, mm-hmm. where Hayne was sitting there with a stack of the reports and Josh Frydenberg and he refused to shake his hand or smile. Frydenberg said, should we shake for the cameras? And he just shook his head and said, no, nah, not doing it, not giving you the photo op. Did anyone at that point tell Kenneth that he needed to smile more and that he was ungrateful and that he was being disrespectful? Of course they didn't. Why? Because he's an older white male. All good. Grace Tame does it and and hell breaks loose. Yeah, nobody accused him of being childish, uh, juvenile and... You know, my my favourite that gets wheeled out towards any sort of activism or protest or campaign, which is, like air quotes, doing more harm than good, which is a a long-favoured line. Yeah, and so Grace Tame has been nothing but forthright about her feelings towards Prime Minister Morrison and her criticism of some really specific responses or lack of response from the Prime Minister and his office to issues that are like specifically part of her remit in terms of sexual assault, sexual violence advocacy for survivors of sexual assault and violence. Like specifically Prime Minister Morrison's refusal to hold an investigation into his former Attorney General when he was accused of rape or like his refusal to cooperate with an independent inquiry or review into what the Prime Minister's office knew about an alleged rape that happened down the hall in Parliament. It's been interesting seeing, you know, the usual suspects, columnists and TV shock jocks rolled out to sort of scold Grace and say that her lack of manners is a political issue. Grace Tame does not dislike Scott Morrison because he's with the Liberal Party or because she disagrees with the coalition's tax reform agenda. Like, it's not a political issue. It's very specific, very recent failures of the Prime Minister during her tenure that specifically relate to her mandate in the Australian of the Year role. Well, I think she's carried herself with uh, enormous power and uh, and presence and influence in her time, and it's not over because as this podcast is being published in a week's time, she and Brittany Higgins are addressing the National Press Club in Canberra. So I think we're moving into the next phase 
of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins' uh, advocacy and if anything, they are going to become more, more important and more influential outside that circle of responsibility that you have as an Australian of the Year. And that's really quite exciting, to tell you the mm. truth. I completely agree. And, like, I think the reason why I was so angry and I suppose energised in a, in a rage kind of way this week about the response to Grace Tame not smiling is the same reason why so many people listening and so many people across the country felt energised in a rage way um, watching the response is because, like, how many how many women have been told to smile at work? Not in my most recent job, you know, that I've only been in for the last couple of months, but in every single job prior in my entire life, I have been told that I need to sort of smile more. So, in case people think I'm being unfriendly or something. And it's this like this expectation of women to not only do their jobs, but also manage the emotions of the people around them. So, you know, instead of someone being like, yeah, I'm not sure if that woman is happy to see me or not. I guess I'll just deal with my emotions myself. It's sort of like, well, I'm not sure if that co- my coworker is happy to see me. So I should... I should raise it with her manager or, you know, I'm not sure if that retail staff member was happy enough to see me or whatever it is. You know, there's just this expectation that women have to put aside their emotions and also, you know, manage and coddle the emotions of the people around them by pretending to feel something that we often don't. Often being asked to basically uh, to make their own experience, feelings and, uh, and emotions and needs secondary to servicing others. And that's, mm. isn't that, isn't that know, the basis of the patriarchy kind of anyway? Isn't that right at the <laughs> guts of it? I mean, I think it's part of it. But do you know what it is the basis of? And I've talked about this on the pod before. That is th- the textbook definition like the Marxist definition of emotional labour. Like emotional labour is not having to support your friends when they're going through a hard time or emotional labour is not having to like explain yourself in the Facebook comments or whatever. Emotional labour is um, like a gendered phenomena seen in workplaces where women mostly have to suppress their own emotions to manage the emotions of other people around them. That is what emotional labour is. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins at the National Press Club. I'm going to try and see if we can get one or either or both of them on the podcast at some stage. That, that's, a, that's a bucket list opportunity that we must pursue somehow. Yeah. It would be so good to talk to them. I think I'd go all tiny-mouthed and starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Let's find them. If you're listening to this, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, Sally, the, the, uh, we should move on to the interview that we've got for this week, and this is an issue that I know you've had experience of. So I was reading a brilliant article by American journalist called Hamilton Nolan, and the New York. it's about the New York Times, which everyone presumes is this bastion of progressive idealism. And, look, no doubt, particularly during the Trump era when uh, the norms around reporting and facts in news and and double-checking your sources to guarantee that what you write has integrity and accuracy uh, became all the more important and the Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian and a few other major journals around the world stood like beacons in the middle of all that. Um, That was important, but the Times also likes to present itself as this bastion of progressive ideals and, and 
fairness across society in general, but they don't, don't always walk the talk in their own institution. And this is really interesting battle going on there at the moment where workers are trying to unionise and the progressive New York Times doesn't want it to happen. In fact, are aggressively pushing back against their own staff. Now, this is something that's not uncommon with, with organisations that do profess to be progressive and inclusive, is it? You know, it's obviously a little bit different in Australia in terms of like workplaces unionising themselves as a workplace and, and sort of following that. It's a different process over in the US. But um, my previous job, so I was at change.org, which is a global company. And so there's sort of, you know, satellite offices around, but the main parent company, I suppose, is in the US. And the different countries don't have too much to do with each other. But in any case, the the workers in the US, just as I was leaving the company towards the end of last year, the workers in the US organised together and unionised. And it was amazing. But um, it wasn't a straightforward process. They had to go to a ballot so so no, the workers can get together and essentially ask permission to unionize and if the bosses say no which they can say no then it has to go to this sort of separate secret ballot process it's all quite involved and and that was what happened with change.org as well so there you go another organization that uh, says it's on the side of a little guy turns out to be on the side of making sure it's got enough coin in its pocket first before it looks out for anyone else. Hamilton Nolan has written a really good piece and he does uh, have a, a really in-depth knowledge of this sort of behaviour from companies that claim to be on the side of the angels but maybe aren't so. Let's have a listen to Hamilton Nolan, American journalist, talking about the New York Times and its battle with its own workers. Hamilton, welcome to On The Job. Thanks for having me. Sitting there in beautiful New Orleans, how are things there? Are they getting ready for uh, for Mardi Gras coming up? They are. I'm going to probably miss Mardi Gras just by a hair, but uh, it's a little it's surprisingly chilly here, but it's always a good time in New Orleans, no matter what. It certainly is. Uh, we've got you on the program today because you do a lot of writing in the States around labor issues and union issues. And one of the articles that caught my eye that you've written recently was about the New York Times, which many Australians read and subscribe to. I subscribe to it. Lots of us sort of came on board, particularly during the Trump years, to try and keep a handle on what was true and what wasn't, and came to know the New York Times as a, a bastion of liberal ideals and uh, of progressive thinking. But when it comes to workers and labor rights, it ain't so. Right. I mean, and big surprise, right? A company may not live up to uh, its stated ideals. You know, the New York Times, the the editorial employees of the New York Times, the journalists have had a union, uh, the News Guild, for many, many decades. Really long established union there at the New York Times. But more recently, uh, last year, the tech workers at the New York Times company, uh, which was about 600 tech side employees of the New York Times company, decided that they wanted to unionize also. They announced their union drive. They had union cards signed. They asked the company to recognize their union. The company refused uh, to voluntarily recognize their union and instead launched into a, an anti-union campaign. And, uh, you know, if that wasn't um, disappointing enough, uh, the New York Times also has a brand called The Wirecutter, which is its sort of product review uh, website of The New York Times. 
And the employees at the wire cutter had been negotiating a contract uh, with the New York Times company for so long that they were forced to essentially uh, walk out over Black Friday weekend, which is the biggest uh, shopping weekend of the year. And that was just about a little over a month ago. So, you know, within the past month, there have been uh, there have been two pretty high profile anti-labor actions by the New York Times company that that uh, if you read the editorial page of the New York Times company kind of makes you say, you know, what's your problem? Absolutely, because they're reporting on issues around, for instance, uh, workers in Amazon warehouses trying to organise and other labour disputes around the United States and around the world is is usually spot on. So it it flies against the perception that the New York Times is actually on board for the the idea of workers receiving a fair day's pay uh, for a fair day's work and entitlement so they've got job security and, and can build a life and a community around the work they do. Yeah, you know, and to be clear, I mean, the, you know, the journalists of the New York Times who write all the good stories are union members and are are absolutely on the right side. But as you touched on a little bit at the top of this, the New York Times company itself, particularly once Donald Trump came into the White House, I mean, they really, really leaned on the idea that supporting a company like the New York Times is the equivalent to supporting democracy and liberal ideas itself. I mean, that is that is very much a selling point and a profit maker uh, for the New York Times company. And that's really where you look at them and you say, you know, um, and, and another thing is that the, the tech workers at the New York Times who are organizing, I mean, that's a really a historic union campaign. You know, in the United States for about the past five or six years, we've had a big wave of media unions, a lot of unionization in the media sector in America. And these tech workers at the New York Times are really the first tech workers at a big media company to join uh, their colleagues, you know, on the editorial side in the union movement. So it's really, it's actually something that should be celebrated throughout the entire labor movement and the entire media industry and, and is going to make a lot of people's lives better. And instead, the management of the New York Times decided to try to break that union, probably unsuccessfully. So let's talk about how this works. It's a bit different here in Australia. So the workers at an organization like the New York Times then approach, after they've organized and announced they want to unionize, they usually go to negotiate a contract with a company and ask the company to recognize their union. Now, an organization that is progressive and believes that workers should have the right to unionize would then ordinarily enter in negotiations in good faith. But the New York Times didn't do that. And there was a particular tactic that's employed in that process. Can you explain what happens there? Yeah. So in the United States, if uh, if you want to unionize your workplace, you have a majority of the workers sign union cards, which are basically just statements that say we want a union here in the workplace. And if you get a majority of workers to sign those union cards, you can present those to management and you say, hey, your workers want a union. And you ask management to recognize the union, which just means that management formally says, yes, you have a union and we're going to bargain a contract. Now, as you said, good employers and good bosses and companies that believe in labor rights will, in fact, do that and will voluntarily recognize the union and proceed into contract negotiations. Companies that hate unions and despise unions and want to break unions and want to fight against unions will refuse to voluntarily recognize the union, which is what the New York Times company did and is what every anti-union company will do. 
and they will force the employees to hold a formal election um, supervised by the National Labor Relations Board, which is the government agency here that supervises uh, union elections. And so it's essentially a way that companies put the brakes on a union campaign and use that time and use the delay to then launch an anti-union campaign and try to talk workers out of unionizing and try to scare people and try to lie to people about all the bad things that are going to happen if, in fact, they they have a union, which are consistently untrue. Uh, but it's a it's a really standard playbook at American companies, you know, and it's as we've had this wave of unionization within the media recently over the past decade here, most media companies have voluntarily recognized the unions because of the simple fact that these companies at at the very least present themselves as having a social conscience, you know, so <laughs> whether that's true or not, they have put out in the world the reputation that they have a social conscience and they care about these things. And so they're kind of boxed into a corner and they recognize the unions. So the fact that the New York Times company, the most high profile liberal media company of all, would have just plainly refused to recognize this union and to launch not just an anti-union campaign, but as you mentioned, one that was ruled to use illegal tactics. I mean, the National Labor Relations Board just very recently ruled that the New York Times had used illegal tactics in its anti-union campaign. And so the New York Times company was illegally union busting for their own union. But in fact, those workers are going to have an election for their union very soon. And once they vote in favor in that election, they will have their union certified no matter what. Which is great news. What sort of tactics are we talking about? What sort of things do big companies do to try to undermine unions uh, being established in their workplaces and workers organizing? Yeah. So I think uh, what the New York Times got busted for, um, and I would have to double check, but at slightly more vicious companies, what they'll frequently do is to just fire uh, pro-union employees, for example, to make threats against people, to tell employees that the company will be shut down if they unionize bald things like that. Now, a company like the New York Times presumably has a little higher paid attorneys on their payroll who can help them avoid uh, some of the more obvious things like that. But what they will do a lot of times at places like the New York Times is they will tell a lot of workers that they are supervisors and they'll say, hey, you know, you have this weird, vague title and therefore you're a supervisor and you are not allowed to be in the union, nor are you allowed to even say anything pro-union. So they will actually try to rule wide swaths of the workforce out of not only being in the union, but even in voicing pro-union sentiments and things like that. They will insinuate that bad things will happen at the company without always coming right out and saying that. And so they it's essentially a, a sort of refined form of bullying people and trying to silence people on the staff so that they can't lend their voices to the union campaign. What's been the reaction from uh, progressive political actors and uh, and people in general to the New York Times approach to its unionised workforce? Because, as you said, it flies right in the face of everything they claim they stand for. 
Yeah, I mean, the good news is that um, the labor movement in America is is actually very popular right now. You know, the sort of crisis of inequality that's been going on in America for the past uh, almost 50 years now is really waking up a very large portion of the public to the fact that unions are really an important tool for this. So, I mean, when the wire cutter workers at The New York Times went on strike over Black Friday weekend, they got a ton of support. A huge amount of support on social media, people boycotting the website at their request, really uh, prominent left wing politicians speaking up, you know, people like Bernie Sanders and AOC and that kind of person will weigh in and support these workers. And so, you know, the good news is for employees at major media companies, it is very easy to use that platform and to use the prestige of the brand to get that public attention and shine a spotlight on the company. And essentially, all they're doing is trying to hold the company to its own standards that it professes. And so the New York Times did get a lot of backlash. And I think that it's really important that people, you know, all over the world understand what these companies are doing, because the the biggest wish of the New York Times company and similar companies is just that nobody pays attention to this stuff. Fascinating what's happening in your part of the world, Hamilton, because here in Australia, unionism is also been very prominent during the uh, issues around our lockdowns and the COVID crisis and the leadership from the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Sally McManus, Michelle O'Neill and others around health and safety, even just in the last uh, week or so with a, uh, a ruling in South Australia where a, a meatpacking company was demanding that its workers turn up to work regardless of the fact that they were COVID positive because the supply chains were breaking down, union pressure shut that down. So unions are still leading from the front in these issues. But union membership is still a struggle for us. And it's that last step in uh, the chain for us to once again re-establish collective bargaining and unionism at the very heart of, of everything that happens for workers in the country. What can we learn from what's happened in the States in terms of how there's been that revival of interest in organising and workers becoming union members again? Because it seems to fly in the face of the American experience in general. Uh, it's true. I mean, I think that the the United States is certainly the union movement has been beaten down more um, than it has been in Australia. Although, you know, all over the world, if you look at the numbers, union membership has been in decline broadly across the Western world. In the United States, I mean, the fact is, you know, the United States has a rich history of of unions and organized labor and labor fights and those things really prove their worth. And there was a time in in the 1950s when one in three American workers was a union member. And that number today is down to around one in 10. And um, the culprit for that is essentially neoliberalism, uh, Reaganism, and the embrace of deregulation, the embrace the idea that the market was magic and would fix everything. And that turned out not to be true as the, as the inequality numbers show. So, I mean, the pandemic, I think, and I, you know, I've been a labor reporter uh, for the past two years full time and, and just covering the pandemic full time. And what you really saw was that once the pandemic hit, everybody was in a workplace crisis. I mean, either people lost their jobs and were in a crisis because of that. They had no safety net. Their jobs didn't care about them. They, they saw very clearly that when that job was gone, their lifeline was gone. Or they were they were quote unquote essential workers who were forced to work during the pandemic, and they were in crisis because of that because they didn't have 
uh, protective gear. They didn't have adequate pay. They, you know, they, their health was in danger every time they went to work. And so I think there really was a mass awakening among working people across America. And I'm, I'm sure across the world to a large extent that your job is not enough to save you. You know, your job is not your friend. Your job is not going to save your life. You need something more. And what is that? That is clearly labor unions. And so I think as we come out of this pandemic, hopefully soon, it seems to go on forever. But as we come out of it, there is absolutely going to be a, a big revival in interest among all types of workers for organizing and trying to protect themselves at work. And I think that the the open question here in America is whether the U.S. labor movement can rise to the occasion and can take advantage of this moment and really use it as a chance to mobilize millions and millions of workers. Well, you have another opportunity too, because the president, Joe Biden, has made it quite clear that he believes in good unionized jobs. And when we heard that phrase out of the mouth of the American president, we almost fell off our chairs here in Australia. Uh, do you think he's true to his word? I mean, he does have a long history of, of interest in labor issues. Do you think he can follow through and make that happen? Analytically, there is no question that Joe Biden is the most pro-union president of the modern era. I mean, uh, he is certainly more committed to appointing very pro-labor appointees to the National Labor Relations Board and places like that. Um, And so I don't I don't question Joe Biden's commitment um, to the idea of unions in America, which is a a breath of fresh air in itself. And, you know, it's not even something that you could say about Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, certainly, or or even other Democratic presidents. But that said, you know, there's a very big gap between that and actually accomplishing concrete legislative things. Uh, There's a big pro-union bill called the PRO Act which cannot get through Congress. The Democrats can't manage to get it through Congress. Uh, The Labor Department has been a little slow on the ball under Biden. There are good things happening, and I think that Labor has a friend in the White House right now, but it's also an open question how much the Biden administration is going to be able to turn that into real concrete action that can help people. Hamilton, it's great having you on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your insights with us as to what's going on at the New York Times and elsewhere in America when it comes to workers. And hopefully here in Australia, we can learn a few lessons from the success that you're having and and help grow uh, the labor movement worldwide. Thank you. Glad to do it. Unions are worldwide. Workers are worldwide. We all got to stick together. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Hamilton Nolan there talking to us here on the job about the New York Times and its battle with its workers who are trying to unionise. I still subscribe to the Times. I still want to read what they write, but I wish they'd uh, they'd walk the talk, Sally. Mm. Like I think the US is further along than we are here in Australia in terms of like anti-union rhetoric and union busting type things. So like I, it's a bit of a um, a warning, perhaps a cautionary tale of letting it go so far that people who probably see themselves as decent and progressive and values aligned might not see the value in unions or, or might think that unions are, you know, militant thugs who make make working life difficult, you know, all that sort of stuff that's been popularised since Howard and, and before Howard. 
Yeah, a cautionary tale. And we'll keep an eye across it and see what happens uh, with those workers uh, at the Times and whether their ballot is successful. Hey, enjoy your week in Taz. Hope the cats settle in. And, uh, Thank you, you so much. you get to make some friends in the hood. Uh, have, you, <laughs> have you been able to drive around and, and check it out? Have you gotten lost on the way to your new house yet? Have you done all those <laughs> things that you do when you move in somewhere new? I've been to Kmart three times. Oh, you're a local then. You're a local now. You've been to the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Bunnings once, of course. Well, you are settling in. You just need to find your favourite <laughs> cafe by next weekend yeah. that, that, or a cafe that you can go to. That, that's your mission for this week. I'm up for it. Good on you, mate. Don't forget you can follow Sally at Sally Rugg. Uh, even from Tasmania, she can tweet <laughs> her thoughts uh, and she will. Uh, and I'm at St. Frankly. You can email us otjpodcast at protonmail.com if you've got any ideas, suggestions or people that you think we should get on the, on the show or if you know how we can get hold of Brittany Hands or, or Grace Tame, <laughs> whatever. Tell us what we need to know and don't forget to give us a review on uh, your favourite platform. It helps others find the show. Sally, have a great week. You too, mate. Bye. Bye. 